Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome everybody to this discussion hosted by the RSA. I'm Anna Markland, Head of Innovation and Change here at the RSA, and I'll be your chair for the conversation today. I'm delighted to be joined by this esteemed panel and would like to welcome Robin Dunbar, Tracy Camilleri and Samantha Rokey. Hello everyone. Hi. Hi. And uh, really great to have you joining us today. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, let me introduce you formally. So Robin Dunbar is Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Oxford. He is a Fellow of the British Academy and of the Royal Anthropological Institute. And his popular science books include The Human Story and How Many Friends Does One Person Need? Both of which have been translated into a dozen languages. Hi, Robin. Hello. Tracy Camilleri and Samantha Rocky are both Associate Fellows at Oxford University Said Business School and co-founders of Thompson Harrison, an organisation specialising in leadership and organisational development. Hello to both of you. Hi. Um, If you're watching along live, we'd love you to get involved in the chat. So please do share your thoughts and comments. And if you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag, hashtag RSA Social Brain. Right, well, I think that's um, everything that we wanted to say. So all that's left now is to dive into the conversation. I was lucky to get a hot off the press copy of the book and there was so much that I wanted to explore with you all further. To start us off, a question to you, Robin. The book is called The Social Brain. Would you like to begin by giving an overview of the social brain theory and how it makes us think about human groups in a different way? Well, I guess the social brain hypothesis, as it's formally known, is an explanation for why monkeys and apes have enormous brains by comparison with all other animals. And the uh, explanation is that they live in very complex social groups. And these are not only um, uh, groups which are relatively large by the size of other species of animals and birds, in terms of stable groups at least, but also they have this very unique characteristic of of bonded relationships where individuals engage in a lot of grooming with each other in particular, which sets up these very close intimate friendships, you might say. And I guess that kind of pitch, that kind of understanding of how our natural social communities actually work, and they really work in exactly the same way, they're just a bit bigger still than the kinds of groups you find in monkeys and apes, um, that that really maps across into many different walks of life. And in particular, in this particular context, the the world of work, that the world of work is a social world and therefore understanding it in terms of our natural social predispositions may help us um, to have a better guide to how best to manage it in order to get uh, the most out of the world of work for the purposes of work on the on the one hand, but also how to get uh, the best out of the world of work for the benefit of those who work, uh, that, that uh, you know, they don't feel it's an alien environment, that they feel it's very much a part of their natural, um, almost home environment, if you like. Thank you. Um, and following on from that, Tracy, I guess, why why is this such an important concept to be thinking about now? Well, that's a good question. I mean, as Robin said, we've spent, well, he's spent a lot of time thinking about the science behind this. And and Sam and I have spent 
Yeah, our whole career is actually really exploring the practice of, you know, how how when you bring a group together, um, some groups end up as being more than the sum of their parts and, and some actually bring one another down. And I think there are three things at the moment that make this um, an important uh, area for focus. I mean, one is ob the obvious situation of the pandemic where our relational, our social uh, connection was, you know, ground to a halt. I remember, remember doing a birthday party with my ancient mother and her trying to pass me a glass of wine through the screen, you know, and she, she was in Wiltshire and I was in, I was in Norfolk. Um, and that sort of sense that actually, you know, what we need, which is to come together and, and to, um, to, 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 be in friendship and relationship with another was stopped by that. The second thing is now, you know, post-pandemic, I don't know whether we're post-pandemic, but in this sort of hybrid world, um, you know, we we really need to think when we come together, it needs to matter. You know, we need to make it count. And I think with Robin, there are so many things we've been thinking about that actually easy things that we can do, um, working with the grain of our of our natural um inherited psychology and some difficult things as well but we are working with organizations that are really struggling to think what's the right you know what's the right um you know ratio between working from home working virtually um and when when we come together how can we make um it much more human and the third thing is it's an interesting time at the moment where companies are really rethinking the shape of their organizations they're rethinking the shape of teams the size of teams it's a moment of kind of reimagining work in some ways it's a it's a hopeful moment and so, you know, what we're hoping that our research and our thinking will just form part of that, that reimagining. That last bit really resonates. I like the idea that this is a time for change being possible and your book as a guide to people and how they can do that. Um, I'd love to come next to Samantha on a slightly different question. So you obviously wrote this book as a group, as a trio. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to understand a little bit around did some of the dynamics that you talk about in the book come up for you guys when you were working together? And what was that experience like? Well, I think um, we actually had a very interesting experience because we wrote a lot of the book during lockdown. So we had to deploy technology, but um, both Tracy and I had met Rob and I'd certainly met him um, before we came together as a group when I was working with a large uh, organization and we actually brought a group of our CEOs to a program at Oxford and Tracy was working at the business school and Robin came and did a presentation. So the three of us were in a room together and um, after that, this was about maybe 10 years ago, and we kind of got together after the session when some of the leaders from the organization I was working with came up to me and said, that is the most phenomenal and really interesting research. Um, surely it has practical application back at work. Um, so, so really at that moment, um, there was a kind of slight beginning of this sort of serendipitous moment of you know, from a client side and then from the business school side and from Robin's side all coming together. Um, so there was there was a sense of bonding sort of back in the day, which I think in our book we talk a lot about actually the the 
um, benefit um, and we had spent time together. And then we really did practice what we preached, actually. Um, when we were allowed to meet for meals, we did that. We we met together as a group. Um, and I think we had sort of wonderful moments spending um, a number of days together, actually just really noodling through what um, what we wanted to put in our book. Um, so I like to think we practice what we preach and, and, you know, we also allowed space for some dissent, which I think is really important um, as part of a group process, but always with the sort of kindness and care, I think that needs to accompany that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we, we did a good job, actually, <laughs> practicing what we had written about. <laughs> Um, and do you have a fond memory from the process of working together? And that's actually a question for for all of you guys. What what kind of stands out as a moment of coming together and bonding as a group? Well, I, I have a particularly fond memory because it's my bad pronunciation. Um, we talk a lot about homophily, which uh, took me an endless amount of time to practice how to say it. And eventually Robin just leaned forward and said, let's just call it friends. Um, so <laughs> I felt there was such a kindness to my poor pronunciation. I think I would say that um, it was humour, actually, that, uh, you know, kept us going, especially when we were all apart trying to write a book and structure a book. Actually, a, a three way structuring a book is hard, but um, we did sometimes laugh till we cried. And that was uh, that was a very <laughs> we sometimes cried and then laughed afterwards. But um, and, and as Sam said, eating together and, you know, Robin was very generous. And so we quite often at in Magdalen College, and there's something about you know the ritual and the structure and the, you know the sort of uh, the, the ways of of eating in college that uh, again was 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 lovely and uh, was a, a real part of us of us working together and putting a book uh, into a final shape. I agree. It, it was the humour. <laughs> That's what did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's such a that such a joy. Uh... A nice experience going all together with that. Um, I was also quite amused to see in the book that you talk about how as humans we find our music preferences an indicator of potential friendship. How are your guys' music preferences aligned? Oh well, this this was this was the beginning of the great saga because uh, uh, in some sense I discovered Tracy because she. Uh, was sitting listening to her son sing in our college choir. I occasionally used to drop it to listen to them perform. And uh, so I thought, well, she must be good. She likes the same music as me. And maybe just to add, we use music a lot, actually, um, in the work that we do as a real backdrop for people coming together. And, um, of course, all these technologies have emerged around about the same time. So Spotify lists um, is something that we always get people to contribute their favorite songs. And we, we have found a real nourishment, actually, for people's experience at work through through music, through using music and discovering each other. Um, so we almost on every single program and every engagement will encourage people to share what their music taste is. Um, and, it, and it is an absolute fast track to bonding. You know, two people discovering their shared love of of classical music or pop music or whatever it is. It's the beginning of a really um, a wonderful conversation that can take place in an unexpected in an unexpected way. I guess this actually goes uh, uh, back to an important point that's very germane that, that we talk quite a bit about in the book, and that is 
dynamics that underpin friendships in everyday life. And, and uh, as a result of the work research we've done, we came up with this idea of the seven pillars of friendship, which is kind of like seven dimensions, um, which if you shared these dimensions with somebody, it, it paves the way, if you like, for the creation of the friendship. One of those is humor and or your sense of humor. The other is your taste in, in music, because there are all sorts of other things like your um, moral and political views and uh, and your hobbies and interests, the things you like doing and, uh, you know, little things like where you come from um, as a point of common contact. You know, my goodness, we must have walked the same streets and sat in the same pubs, even if we did it 20 years apart kind of thing. So all those kind of things that kind of define you as a person and become Im important points of contact to create relationships or, or to fast track the creation of relationships. And I guess what you two have been doing with some of your practice has been implementing that in particular, you know, allowing people to identify those quickly or helping them identify so that they can make um, build, uh, if you like, functional relationships much more quickly than might otherwise um, happen in the, in the you know, cold uh, world of work <laughs> where it's full of strangers that we don't know. Could, could I actually stick with you, Robin, and ask a little bit more? Because I think we've alluded and we maybe assume that people watching know about the Dunbar number and how that relates to forming friendships and um, I wonder if you could actually maybe take a step back and say a little bit more about what is exactly um, the, the Dunbar number, how does that play in the social brain theory, and how does it influence or how is it influenced by our understanding of human biology and inherited behaviours? Okay, the, the Dunbar number is um, really the number of relationships that any can maintain at any one time. So these are meaningful relationships. You know, they're, they're sort of not not relationships with, with uh, I don't know, your barista that you collect your uh, latte from on the way to work every morning. They're meaningful relationships in your life. And typically, they would be about half family, extended family members, and the other half friends. That number's about 150. That number came as a prediction off the back of a equation relating social group size in monkeys and apes to the size of their brains. We simply plugged in the size of human brains and the number that came out was 150. Um, uh, it, and it, the number we get empirically from looking at things like the number of people uh, that you've phoned during the course of a year, for example, and this is on a huge database. Um, I think it's 20% of an entire country, European country, uh, which uh, remains nameless. Um, but there are something like 6 billion phone calls involved. So it's a massive sample. Uh, the number 150 comes up out of that. If you look at uh, the number of friends people have on Facebook, there's a, a very nice sample of that. 61 million Facebook pages, the average number of friends is exactly 149. You can't get closer than 150. Um, so that's the sort of base number. But it turns out that if you look at something like the traffic that people uh, post, uh, named postings on Facebook or, or whom they call and how often they, they, they call them on their phones, um, the picture you get of your social network of 150 people is much more like the ripples on a pond 
if you imagine yourself as the stone thrown into a pond and you're surrounded by these series of ripples going out, the, the, our social networks have that same kind of fractal structure. So you have a, a, a very small inner core of about five people who are extremely meaningful to you, your, your intimate friends and family, if you like, and then the numbers go out in a very ordered sequence. The next layer uh, is 15 people, the next 50 people, then 150 people. And there are layers beyond that, but, but um, uh, they are obviously, you know, sort of people we would class as acquaintances rather than friends, perhaps. Um, so the issue with these numbers is that actually what, what creates them in, in many ways is the flow of information around the system. They, they seem to work especially well uh, in terms of facilitating the flow of information around the system, however you measure that 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 uh, information, it, it, it could be um, your uh, the frequency that you phone people, the frequency that you tell people things, or or just how you feel about them, if you like. You know. uh, it, it's it's all in a cybernetic sense information. Now, what that sort of implies is that these different layers. Um, have different characteristics of friendship. So the inner core ones are very intense. They, 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 you don't really have to think or ask people what they're thinking because you know, you just know them so well. Whereas maybe people in the outer layers you have some empathy with, but you perhaps don't know uh, as intimately. And people have kind of hovered around the idea, uh, I think, for many years that... Uh, different kinds of functional work groups that you might have in a work environment might have ideal sizes that you can't just sort of shoehorn 20 people into a committee to, to solve a problem. Uh, because what will happen is, you know, probably 15 of them will drift off, especially if it's on, on Zoom, 15 of them will drift off to check their news feed. So, um, you know, that maybe there are, there are optimal group sizes for different sort of functions. And that seems to be um, the case that if, if you have something that needs a lot of intense work by people who really understand how each other think, five is probably the upper limit you can do on that. Whereas if you want a, a group to bandy ideas about and come up with blue, blue skies thinking, then uh, you really need a bigger group, which, which will include more voices. But the, the, the cost you bear for that is, you know, you, you, you really, most of you won't necessarily be on the same page. So you'll have to stop and explain stuff to to uh, everybody else. Whereas a, a very small intimate group that just knows all these things, you don't have to explain the background details to them. They understand your jokes without you having to explain them, basically. Well, that brings me um, back to Tracy and Samantha. And you were talking about how when you were working with different groups, you found that there is potential to use this number. As you were saying, there's potential to use some of the insights in your book to reimagine the world of work. So Tracy, coming to you first, how might we use some of this insight that Robin's just shared into how we design organisations? Well, there are a couple of things that come straight to mind. I mean, one is, as, as Robin already alluded to I and mean, when we interviewed a lot of people leading teams large and small in hugely different uh, arenas from army generals through to conductors of orchestras to entrepreneurs to designers and so on and, and asked them about their practice and their experience and I think 
you know, one uh, army general said, you know, this small group where, as Robin says, one can mentalize uh, with each other. I, I know what you're thinking about, what Sam's thinking about, what Robin's thinking without having to debrief. And uh, he said, you know, that small fire group in the army, is that that's what people put their life on the line for, that intense sense of loyalty. At 15, as Robin said, again, it's a great size of group for um for taking decisions. And I think, you know, what, what we've been interested in, Sam and I, is, is a different kind of leadership also, the different styles of leadership that you need at different scales. Um, so actually with five or so people, uh, great for, for creative teams and crisis teams and so on, you don't need a leader. You might need some permissive leader at the side who, who gives you permission to go at pace, probably faster than the rest of the organization, a kind of permissive, protective, facilitative, you know, keeping a weather eye that you don't get too out of pace with everybody else. At 15, you need facilitative leadership, people who can convene, can mediate, can, as Robin said, bring in the voices. And I mean, I don't know about you, but We've been in lots of meetings that have been too big over the last few years, you know, especially on Zoom. And that leadership ability to create a structure, to bring in voices, particularly uh, around complex decision making. I mean, you're, I know, Anna, you're interested in uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. And so on. 50 is a really interesting number we found for founders and entrepreneurs. It's a number at which... Suddenly you need, and, and, and Robin talked about the way information passes around the system. And I think it's a number at which founders suddenly feel, you know, their heads are going to explode and this, you know, regret it's not like the old days and the need to put structure in. And we found quite interestingly, people tend to move from 50 to 150 quite quickly because you need to put layers and specialists in at that layer. And then at 150, you know, as you're at the edge of the Dunbar number, you know, um, I can't remember who it was who said beyond that, the weird stuff happens, the sort of stand on a chair number, you know, beyond 150, you stand on a chair and shout, you know, you probably can't be heard. And, you know, beyond that as a leader, you, you actually take on a symbolic function. You can't know everyone you're leading. They project their hopes and fears onto you, onto you and you actually need to be resilient enough to, to take it, um, but also cognizant that even gestures that you make can be hugely powerful symbolically for the people you lead. So we've been interested in this, um, this, this question of, of leadership at different scales and also mapping um, tasks, particular tasks to particular sizes. So that's one aspect of um, that. There are other aspects of, of this reimagining, but that's one we've been very, very interested in. That's fantastic. And I wonder if, um, Samantha, you had something you wanted to build on, if that's one aspect that Tracy just shared. Is there other things that have been on your mind? Yes, I mean, what's been really interesting to us, actually, is that organisations are, are kind of thinking and looking into the future and, and recognising that there needs to be sort of a deliberate and dedicated focus on something like a social strategy. Um, and we use the word strategy absolutely deliberately because you have a marketing strategy, you'll have a finance strategy, but of course a social strategy is as important because it's those moments of creating connection, um, the ability to create the space for things like friendship to evolve and develop at work. Um, 
is really important. And and um, Robin speaks a lot about the research in the last decade, actually, and the impact of close relationships on health and well-being. So um, these things can't be left up to chance. You can't imagine that people are going to craft this for themselves. Um, some of the most successful organizations that we've worked with are very deliberate about things like bringing people together over meals. Um, certainly in our work, uh, we've seen organizations that have canteens um, which have kind of been in and out of fashion over the years, actually, when there is a canteen, the, the, the benefit of that far extends the sort of opportunity for kind of getting a lunch together. But actually, those moments of connection, those moments of feeling a sense of well-being towards your fellow colleague, I mean, that stretches on into work. Um, so we we write a lot in our book about kind of putting a social strategy back at the heart of how organizations seeing themselves. Yes, and I think you mentioned that some sports teams have cultural coaches, and I wonder if that's a practice that you're seeing elsewhere as well. It, well, certainly some of the clients that we're working with at the moment um, are very particular about a social strategy. Um, and in fact, we, we work with a client who's, who's taken that even probably to the next step, which is that when people leave the organization, they actually send a small um, forget-me-not plant or message to say, we're still thinking about you. You're not part of us at this moment, but you know, you'll be forever part of our system. And I think it's that part, you know, that's that's what connects us as humans. Um, so we are very excited actually about some of the, the real forward thinking that we're seeing um, in this space and just the, the, the long-term benefits um, on all the important indicators, um, including discretionary effort and performance. So it's not just a sense of health and well-being. It has so many other benefits to the organization as well. That's a really interesting point around the longevity of our networks and how they tend to stay with us. And I wanted actually to throw a question to Robin, because at the RSA, we've been looking at uh, social networks and we've been working with Raj Chetty to understand, you know, what, what does it look like? Who are, who are in our social networks and how does that link to social mobility? And I guess what I wanted to get your thoughts on is how fixed or movable is our Dunbar circle? And is there a point in life when it crystallizes? And are you always part of the of your kind of former work or does it? Yeah. How can you sort of move between circles? What does it mean? And as I said, what does it really mean for social mobility and our world of work in, in connection to that? Well, I, there's nothing um, permanent about the membership of your social network, your, your circle of 150 friends and family. Um, they are simply, if you like, slots that you can manage. And uh, these slots uh, gain and lose people uh, over time uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and in fact, actually, there's, there's a sort of whole life history process here because you, you start out life with a, with a social circle of, of sort of one and a half or something like that. Um, and you gradually extend the layers outwards, it seems. And you don't really get to your 150 till you're probably in your early 20s. And then it stabilizes for a long time. It may overshoot, actually, in, in, in the early 20s a little bit as people sort of explore more relationships. But it, it sort of stabilizes by the 30s and, and stays about 150 till you get to some old 
age considerably older than me, I hope, where it starts to decline again at the other end. And 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 if you live long enough, I guess you probably end up back at, at, at one and a half at, at your opposite end of life. Uh, but the point about this really is how uh, even the size of those circles do, does have a, a, a natural trajectory over the lifetime, but who you include in that circle will also vary. And there's a modestly high turnover. It's particularly high, we found, in the sort of late teens, early 20s age group. They, they can, you know, people in friends, at least in their networks, can change position um, uh, as much as 40% uh, of, of their total um cohort of friends can move position during the course of a year. Um, that's a very, very high frequency. Whereas the the number of who, who's in your innermost circle, uh, that's that group of five, what we sometimes call the shoulders to cry on friends, the ones who will sort of come and pick you up when your world falls apart. That That is much more stable. Those are much more like lifelong relationships. It takes, you probably only Somebody only moves out of that circle and is replaced about um, once every uh, two or three years, something of, of that sort. It's, it's a very low, low, low rate of turnover. Um, but and that's a, those tend to be your intimate friends, which you've known for a very long time, whereas further out, there's quite a lot of uh, movement going on as you meet people. You just sort of, um, well, let's put it this way. If you meet new people, <laughs> If you want to get to know them better, you've got to drop somebody else. Right? It's as simple as that. So you know, you you arrive at your first day at at your new place of work, and you're suddenly exposed to a large number of new people. Now, most of those would normally sit in the, to be fair, normally sit in the kind of um, acquaintances layer out beyond immediately beyond your 150. So they're people you'd go and have a beer with them after work, maybe, but you would never invite them home for your big. Uh, 50th birthday party or, or, or whatever it may be um but but um uh you know if you some of them could turn out actually to be very good friends and if you want to bring them into the inner circles and see more of them i'm afraid time is a constraint in the world the social world as well as the world of work so you have to make a decision to just see somebody else less often so there's a lot of churn as the the technical term in in social networks uh has it uh in in the composition of networks the membership of networks which is fine you know that's that's um to be expected and it's not to be worried about but and i guess actually just reflecting back on lockdown it lockdown witnessed a lot of turnover in people's friendships for just this reason because it allowed them to step back for a minute and evaluate particular friendships and or you know, they bumped into people that they were doing, you know, sort of volunteering, uh, taking, I don't know, uh, elderly folks medicines round from, from the chemist and all this kind of thing and, and discovered there are actually some quite nice people next door to them. <laughs> They'd like to see more of them. So uh, other people had to be dropped from the immediate circle to make room for that. So that kind of turnover is just part of life, I think. It sounds like, though, actually, we can be a bit more intentional. And I wonder if I can ask Tracy and Samantha, maybe coming first to you, Tracy, around how can leaders play a role in helping us think about who do we want in our circle and helping us maybe move some work acquaintances into being more closer, more intimate shoulders to cry on? And what other kind of roles that the social brain suggests for leaders to play? 
That's a very good question. And as organizational development specialists, we've been really attracted by the dynamism of the Dunbar graph, as opposed to, and if you think about a traditional kind of uh, org chart, the, the very, you know, pyramidal kind of static shape of it, whereas this idea of, you know, the ripples in a pool, this sort of sense, a flatter sense, more, you know, if, if, if we think of it in organisational shape terms, more fractal, more like a honeycomb, flatter, um, and that sense of, as you say, and are being intentional about, you know, if you're a leader uh, and you change your strategy or, you know, there's a huge contextual change, you know, who's in your 15? Who are you spending 60% of your time with? Are they the right people? And that then leads you on to the skills of, um, you know, making relationship and breaking relationship in a really civilized way at times you have to turn away as as robin says we only have so many slots you know uh you know there's only so so much time in a day i think another thing for leaders to think about is those transitional moments um we were talking to um uh, a woman leader in a tech firm who came back from maternity leave and came back you know into a circle that she'd been in before, but found that she was sort of left off the list of, you know, circulation list. Someone else was sitting in a chair. You know, those beginnings and endings. Robin talked about when you when you join a company. Um, we've been very interested in thinking about those induction moments, which, uh, you know, how can they be more reciprocal? How can they be? Um, you know, how can you feel like you really are? coming inside a sort of uh, a Dunbar graph, if you will, or, or, or a, a place of belonging. Um, so we, we've been focusing on moments of transition. We've been focusing on the leadership being more intentional about who, you know, how you manage both at a personal level, but also at an organizational level and also the shapes of the shapes of organizations as well. And thinking that, um, you know, this is a moment to, to think about, you know, particularly as we all work you know, we work in complex systems, you know, where change comes from the bottom, it comes from the edge, it doesn't come from the all knowing top and get cascaded down. Actually, you know, some some of our organization, organizational conceptual structures that are still, you know, if you think of the language we use, you know, still very much based on kind of the industrial revolution and the way we think of ourselves as a well functioning machine. Um, are they fit for purpose now? And, and isn't there something more interesting that we could do together? I'm really struck by your comment there, Tracy, around leaders being not just kind of top down, but, but also surrounded by teams. And I wonder, Samantha, if you can say, because it was an interesting point in the book around we often assess leaders individually, but actually leaders succeed in the context of their team and the people they manage. Is that something that we could be do, doing more of, evaluating people kind of in their team context? Yeah, I think um, I think what's been what was really interesting to us as we spoke to people across industries is that um, you, you know the the water in which you swim, which is often the team you're part of, um, can really be an enabler to your thriving or a disenabler, um, and really recognizing the the power and potency of of having different people in a team that really um, allow somebody to, to be their best selves. Um, 
it's it's a really interesting it's such an interesting tension we interviewed a ceo who spoke of his regret actually um he worked in a very high performing team um it, it was a very successful team but it held him in an echo chamber of of advice and commentary and so so you you're almost having to push against the sort of slight comfort of being with people who really know you who see you who um who who are absolutely brilliant at bringing out your best side but at the same time there's a reduction around your ability to be kind of perhaps a little bit edgier to bring in new thoughts. So um, we write a lot about the tension in our book. We have to work with the grain and against the grain. Um, but as long as you understand both of those, the push and the pull, you have an, an opportunity to make some really good choices. Um, and in fact, we worked with somebody who was really recognizing the need actually to be exposed to new kinds of thinking. And, and we designed something called polymathic coaching for them which is to take them out of their normal kind of conversational groups and introduce them to such a wide range of experts that they were never going to be great friends with we just don't have the time it takes about 200 hours to to make a friend uh, to make a friend but this is more about saying actually here's an opportunity to have someone a conversation with someone completely different um, and then come together with your team and bring in what you've learned um, and and do that in lots of different ways. So so that's some of the experiences that we've had, both working with and against this this grain. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And I guess that actually makes me um, a question for for all of you guys around how how do you get the balance right? So part of the RSA's thinking is around regenerative practice, and we've been observing that sometimes organisations can be very extractive of their employees and staff. And I wonder if the social brain actually has a dark side where you do create the sense of your team as family and you sacrifice yourself. You might, you know, not call out bad practice. You might let certain things slide. And, you know, in the in the kind of worst sense, that leads to really terrible things like fraud and, and other kind of instances of malpractice. So I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts as a panel around how, how can you make the best of the social brain without falling prey to the, the negative? Shall I start? I mean, Robin always says nothing nothing comes for free in, in biology. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we emphasize, for example, the importance of a sense of belonging. And there's been a lot of research in the last three years about that being a huge element for retention of people for fulfillment at work but in excess of course you can get cultish exclusionary um you know unpleasant you know sort of group think all of these things in excess um can be can be negative um both in terms of a company exploiting perhaps people's kind of familial giving relational uh, connection, but also from the employee perspective. I mean, we we will free ride at times, you know, if we can get away with it. Uh, and I think this comes back to, well, in my book, it comes back to leadership and, and something that Sam said, you know, at times you've got to work with the grain, um, you know. So we designed, for example, a a cultural gathering uh, for a company that 
had hired half their people during lockdown and yet their culture is hugely important to them and they said goodness you know we, we don't we haven't even met there's a lack of confidence even um so to bring everyone together from the chairman through to the the most junior employee um for a kind of celebration of culture but also um some some really serious learning together as well and how we did that was on on the first day we used the seven pillars of friendship to bring people who were nervous actually about meeting their colleagues for the first time, some of them, uh, together with people who shared hobbies or uh, as we were just saying earlier, shared music taste, uh, um, but, and and had them in groups of four, you know, with people who, who they had a lot in common with, even though they'd never met. But conscious and what we wanted to show was on the next day, you know, th that homophilic tendency may be good for comfort, but actually for performance, for vibrant work, for, you know, really interesting times, you also need to come together with people with whom you have very, very little in common. And so on the second day, we put them, uh, having done this, you know, mapping of their seven pillars into groups with people that they had the least in common with, you know, embroiderers with fell runners with um, heavy metal drummers and so on uh, into groups. And, and there was, you know, that sense that you've got to work with it and against it was, that's what we were trying to say on this, in that uh, cultural gathering. My colleagues. I think that actually um, makes me want to ask a, a maybe kind of final question, which is we've been thinking a lot at the RSA about what could go right. And you were sharing just now, Tracy, about some of the things that, that have gone right for organisations that take this really seriously. Um, maybe coming first to you, Robin, and then to Samantha, if organisations do pay attention to the social brain, are you able to share some of the things that you think they'll see as a result and some of the progress towards that culture? So maybe, Robin, to, to your thoughts first. Uh, there's two comments I might make, actually. One is that being embedded, I mean, I think one of the big problems we've had, aside from everything else in the last few years, has been this extraordinary growing pandemic of loneliness, especially among the 20-somethings moving to their first job in a city. They have no idea you know, where you go to meet people or they don't know anybody. And the only people they know are at work who obviously already have family to rush home to at five o'clock and all those kinds of things. So you've had this terrible loneliness thing. Well, in a uh, lack of friends and loneliness is the single predict biggest predictor of ill health. Uh, and by as a direct consequence of that, you know, you have a lot of um, depression and a lot of physical illness and time being taken off work. So one of the benefits of getting uh, the, the, the organization to work more like a village and people can have uh, uh, feel comfortable and have friendships within it is simply that their health is going to be better. There's going to be less time lost to, to uh, ill health. And uh, you know, clearly both parties, um, the organization and the, the individual, benefit again we benefit enormously from that the other side of the story though is what's important about creating this sense of community is it lies in creating uh, the sense of trust and uh, and obligation um uh, that underpins our natural social world and if you like underpins the sense of a village in a, in a small uh village community anywhere around the world um, you know, that's that's your guardian 
as much as anything against um, bad behavior in any form, you know, um, whether it's ste stealing the um, uh, department uh, paper clips or, or what, you know, it, it's, it's, it's having that, the, the community itself acting as its own police force. And you know, small scale communities that works very, very well because people feel they can say something, you know, to somebody who's stepping out of line. Whereas once you get above that 150 level um, for a community or any organization, that's when you transition into a much more transactional mode of relationships that, that people, you know, if, if, if we were in a very large organization and you told me off, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, not washing up my cups or something, I'd be very much inclined to um, tell you what to do with <laughs> with my cups and your cups. Whereas in a smaller organization or a smaller unit, and when, you know, it doesn't mean say you can't have these kind of um, uh, grouping sizes within very, very large organization. In, in a smaller grouping, People won't do that because they have this sense of obligation to each other, which because you know, I understand what the rules are, I understand what the rules of relationships are. Life is just going to be unpleasant uh, if if we keep um, uh, falling out with each other. And so they make that extra effort then. And, and they feel freer to both accept criticism when it's made and feel less threatened by it, uh, but also more willing then to, to say to people that don't, didn't really like what you did then. To give that valuable, valuable feedback. Um, well, just final thoughts then from Samantha, anything that you wanted to add around the benefits of embracing this type of thinking? Yes, of course. I mean, there, there are lots of ways of measuring success. Um, we've looked at it through sort of performance, the impact that you want to have and your ability to innovate. Um, and we have interviewed over 50 business leaders and CEOs and people who are leading incredibly complex organizations. Um, and we have tried to through taking all of this research, put it into something which we believe if you, and the research backs us up and the people that we spoke to, that if you practice and use um, and really focus on these six areas, you will see the benefits in your own organization. And there is a clear connection. I um, mean, we've used some of the most iconic organizations in the world actually have practiced um, what we've been talking about and what we talk about in our book. And we've, we've had the joy actually of interviewing people from those organizations um, from all over the world. So we think we've contributed to the conversation about how to make organizations really wonderful for new people coming in for future generations, but also a real sense of, as you say, in uh, the RSA is driving towards this kind of idea of generative organizations. What would it take? Um, so hopefully we've contributed to the conversation about what you could do to enhance your own organization. I definitely think you guys have. And as I said, please, um, with everyone watching, please do make sure you get a copy of the book because there are so much more stuff that we didn't unfortunately have time to discuss um, because that is all the time we have today. Robin, Tracy, Samantha, it's been great to speak with you. Thank you again for making time to talk with us. The Social Brain is out now. Uh, the RSA have provided a discount code for anyone buying the book through FOILS. The code is FOILSRSA20. Both the code and a link to the book will be appearing in the live chat as we speak. 
Thank you to everyone who tuned in to watch. Thank you to the RSA for hosting this event. And thanks again to our fantastic speakers. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved in their global fellowship community, you can visit thersa.org. Thank you all for watching and see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.